wonderful book of Old Testament history, and we'll look at all of chapter 15 uh, together tonight. But to give you that kind of central sense of uh, the text before us, I'm just going to read verse 17 through 23 uh, to get us started. And then I will pray and we'll continue on. So do listen uh, once again as the Lord again speaks to you through his perfect and pure word. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the Lord's voice? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that you do speak to us through your word and pray that it would guide us this evening, that your spirit would open our hearts to the truth that is in this passage, that that same spirit would apply it where we need its power, that would convict us of the ways in which we have fallen short, that would remind us of the necessity of repentance and obedience, and of course always point us to our Savior Jesus Christ took the judgment that our sins deserve, that we might know his eternal life, and we prayed in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I think that there are few words that can so immediately stir up emotions of sadness, emptiness, hopelessness, as the word rejected. Uh, perhaps some of you know this quite intimately, you can think back in your life in ways in which someone has rejected you. you know, students, it could have been your desire to initiate a relationship with someone and they rejected that invitation. You could have filled out the paperwork, couldn't you, to go to a college or university and you find out that they rejected your application. And of course, as you get older, as you live longer, the opportunities for being rejected uh, they tend to only increase, don't they? Children can reject their parents. A spouse can reject the one that they have vowed to be with in all faithfulness. You could, after many decades of service, faithfully and honestly with your employer, just years before you're supposed to have the security of retirement, find yourself rejected. A rejection no matter the circumstance, rejection no matter the situation. No, rejection, no matter the reason, is, is a 
dark day in anyone's life. And certainly it's a dark day that we come to in the life not only of King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, but the nation of Israel as a whole. And of course, this isn't the first dark day that's belonged to the Bible. You can even think back, can't you, to the book of Genesis and work your way forward and notice how every single book to this point has had a singularly dark day in it. In Genesis, you got the dark day of Adam's fall into sin in chapter 3, humanity's depravity in chapter 6. In the book of Exodus, you have Israel's dark day of the golden calf incident there at Mount Sinai in chapter 32. You have Leviticus, the dark day of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 15. Numbers, you have the dark day of Moses sinfully striking the rock in Numbers chapter 20, and he's consequentially not allowed to see the promised land. You have the dark day of threatened covenant curses that will fall upon God's people for their disobedience in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Some of you know the dark day of Achan's sin in the book of Joshua chapter 7. Of course, the book of Judges as a whole. It seems just one dark day after another as the cycle of Judges continue. You have, of course, have in Ruth chapter 1 the dark day of family loss. And here is no doubt the darkest day in Saul's life. As you glance back to the end of verse 23, you'll notice the simple statement, the verdict over Saul in this passage is you have rejected the Lord's word, he has also rejected you. A king rejected. That's the theme that we want to look at along the way tonight. And let's make sure we catch up in the story to recognize the context of where we find ourselves in chapter 15. This isn't the first time, as we'll see tonight, and remember tonight that Saul has fallen short. He already heard the Lord's warning about his needed faithfulness as a monarch in chapter 12. Uh, you might remember back to chapter 13, only two studies back. You can glance back there even to verse 14 of chapter 13. Saul gives this unlawful sacrifice and what did the Lord pronounce over him in verse 14? Now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. One of our elders, Jeff Landers, walked us through 1 Samuel 14 last week and just the foolishness, the arrogance that marked Saul's warring life. And we left off in verse 46. And if you just glance through those final verses of chapter 14, what you'll notice is Saul's life was very much one of constant warfare, such that the very end of chapter 14 would say in verse 52, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. Therefore, it's not surprising that Saul's rejection comes in the context of war. So what I want to show you along the way tonight as we work our way through the chapter, as we think about this king who was rejected, I want to show you four things as we walk through the passage. We'll get through the first two quickly. Think more about the third and fourth before we apply it at the end. The first thing you need to see is, of course, the requirement. Because it's battle, it's war that the Lord even requires of Saul. Notice verse 1 through 3 of chapter 15. Samuel comes and says to Saul, Yahweh has sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. So children, here's the requirement. Verse 2 through 3, thus says the Lord of hosts. I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that 
they have. The requirement is the complete destruction of the Amalekites. And you need to understand something of the background to that requirement to understand actually how long it had taken to bring this to fulfillment. Because the story that even the Lord is referencing there goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 17. Maybe you can recall it. It's only a few weeks out of God has, after God has delivered his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. A few weeks later they come and have war with the Amalekites. And it's there on, underneath a hill that Joshua the general is fighting against the Amalekites. And it's there on top of the hill that Moses is standing at the command of the Lord with a staff in hand. And you remember, every, every time he keeps the staff up high, Israel prevails against the Amalekites. Every time that staff lowers, Israel suffers in the battle. So Aaron and Hur, somewhat famously, they come alongside, they hold his arms up, and Israel defeats the Amalekites. And at the end of that chapter, the Lord commands Moses, write a memorial in a book and recite it in the ear of, jo of Joshua. I will blot out the Amalekites from the memory of earth. I'm going to wipe them out because they opposed my people. 400 years pass, roughly, between that scene in Exodus 17 and our scene tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 400 years pass of that being recited as a memorial, as a prophecy, as a pronouncement. And you think, don't you, that there were not a few generations that might have passed through those 400 years, hearing that the Lord was going to blot out the Amalekites, and guess what? Amalek is still there, warring against God's people. People wonder if God's word is actually going to come to pass. But students do always remember, God's word always comes to pass. 400 years had elapsed in God's judgment, and we know from the New Testament that his patience, 400 years of patience, is meant to bring people to repentance. Now, certainly there's no repentance we ever see in the Old Testament related to the Amalekites. And so the Lord decrees, and understand the fullness of what he decrees in this requirement, the total destruction of all the Amalekites. No matter their age, no matter their possessions, they're all to die. And you might have come across this perhaps even in other parts of the Old Testament, this conquest of Canaan where, where God decrees that his people war against the Canaanites and, and wipe them out. Now, what you need to understand, because of course many people can struggle over this solemn and sober reality, is that what the Lord is, is decreeing there is not ethnic punishment. What the Lord is decreeing is ethical punishment. What's the distinction? He's not punishing them because of who they are. He's punishing them because of what they've done. They, they deserve this. Saul, this is the requirement. Wipe them all out. Point number two, the response. You'll notice in verse four and five that Saul quickly grabs a, a rather strong fighting force of 210,000 men. He marches them to the city gates down there at Amalek. Notice verse seven through nine to see how this battle goes. He defeated the Amalekites, verse seven tells us, from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. 
So kids, think about an answer to this simple question. Did Saul have the right response to the Lord's requirement? No. He kept the king alive. He kept the best of the animals alive. The requirement was clear enough. His response was one of failure. That leads us to the third section, which is the regret. What does God think of Saul's response? Look at verse 11. The Lord came to Samuel and says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And to underscore the regret, look at the end of our chapter, all the way down at the end of verse 35. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Uh, The original word there that my ESV is rendering as regret, it's one that English translators throughout the ages have tried to grapple with because they understand the theological implications of saying that God has regret. That's why the King James would say God repented. Uh, The New International Version would say God was grieved over what Saul had done. And to further complicate the matter theologically, notice what Samuel says in verse 29. He says, And The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Perhaps you understand the difficulty that can often belong to these kind of texts of Scripture. The Lord regretted he made Saul king. Samuel says, God does not regret as man regrets. So let's think about this just quite quickly, theologically, because it's very important. This is not the only passage in the Old Testament where you'll find this language of God regretting, repenting, relenting of, of, of various things. It's, it's, of course, right for us to understand that we, we can never think of God in this moment as believing he's made a mistake with appointing Saul as king. Because if God makes mistakes, he is not perfect. And the Bible is so abundantly clear to us that God is perfect. He never makes a mistake. In the same way, if he had made a mistake, why would you ever trust in God? He might make another mistake. Why would you ever believe that he's wise? Who knows? He's done it wrong before. Why would you ever believe you can trust that he's unchanging? Because he might change his mind on a whim or as a consequence of what someone has done. So what does it look like then that we can say God had regret over Saul's sin. And at the same time, Samuel declaring, he's not like man and he has no regret. Like man has regret. Perhaps the two central attributes and characteristics of God that you need to recognize are, are at play here. Things we call impassibility and immutability. Very dense terms that often refer to the fact impassibility. God is not someone on which we can act as though he responds in that way to us. We can shove him around as though he's surprised by what we are doing. In the same way, he's immutable. He's, he's unchangeable. He does not have regret like men and women and kids have regret. I think the right way, in the simplest way, no doubt, historically for us to communicate what's happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 15, is that it's using language we can understand. That God in his kindness, just like parents might have baby talk with their children, that the children can understand. Here is God speaking in language that we can understand, speaking in language that we can understand over his supreme displeasure of Saul's sin. 
His impassable and immutable character is now coming into the situation to bear on Saul's sin. He is not happy with Saul's sin. So much so that the text is content to use the language of regret. So we have the requirement. We have the response. We have the regret. The main burden of the passage, though, is on the rejection. Is on the rejection. Because you'll notice in verse 11 how it continues. The Lord has said he regrets that he's made Saul king. And Samuel was angry. He cried to the Lord all night. And we don't know, we can't say with any degree of absolute certainty what it exactly was that made Samuel so angry in that moment. Uh, We do know from previous chapters, he had entered into this establishment of the monarchy with great reluctance. Uh, Certainly, he's getting ready to bear a word of, of supreme judgment upon Saul, and maybe that kept him up at night. Whatever it was, you'll notice in verse 12, he rises early the next morning, he goes out to meet Saul Look what Saul says in verse 13. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel, it's as though he begins to think internally with this language we often sing at Christmas time. Well, Saul, do you hear what I hear? What's that sheep bleeding over there? What's the noise of the oxen over there? Really? You perform the commandment of the Lord. I will come back to this in a second, but just to make sure we understand the, the real centrality of the issue here. Saul begins to have this back and forth with Samuel, uh, which is quite striking. What you'll see happens in verse 14 and 15. Uh, Saul is using this language that largely is trying to excuse his sin away and Uh, Certainly every parent can sympathize with this excuse-making enterprise of Saul in verse 16 when Samuel says, stop. Just stop. It's It's a terrifying thing when a servant of the Lord comes and says, stop. I frankly have had times more than I wish to admit in my ministry where in the midst of a conversation I've said, just stop. He says, notice, continue, verse 16, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to him, speak. You'll notice verse 17 and 18. He simply goes on to say, doesn't he, Samuel to Saul, that Saul, the Lord appointed you who is from the least of the tribes of Israel. He graciously appointed you as king. He gave you a clear mission. Destroy all the Amalekites. It wasn't confusing. It wasn't difficult to understand. Again, Saul has this back and forth of trying to excuse what he's done, trying to rationalize what he has done. He even gets to the point, if you'll notice, in verse 24, he says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. He goes on to say, ask for my pardon. He goes on to say, why don't you come back with me? And look what happens in verse 26 and 27. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. He has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. He has given it to the one after Yahweh's own heart. So it's simple enough, isn't it? The requirement, Saul, devote 
the Amalekites to destruction. The response, Saul obeyed it partially. The regret, the Lord was supremely displeased over Saul's sin. The rejection, Saul has the kingdom torn away from his grip. This is a king rejected. I don't know about you, but certainly in the circles in which I live and I perhaps just due to ministry realities, I hear these stories all the time about leaders disqualifying themselves in sin. And I always want to protect the genuine surprise that we ought to have when leaders disqualify themselves into falling into sin because we don't want to be so cynical and skeptical of good godly authority that we assume every leader out there is going to eventually disqualify themselves from sin because that's certainly not true. Well, I remember years ago coming across a book that was on the subject of the Holy Spirit in preaching. It was written by a well-known seminary professor at the time and actually quite powerful preacher. And I read the book as a young minister and was very much helped by the totality of the book. But there's one particular chapter that really stood out to me and it was of the necessity of walking with the Spirit uh, for power in preaching. And it was helpful enough that I gave away copies to interns at the church where I was at the time, subsequently uh, recommended it to various pastors and even had used it in, in seminary courses only to discover some years later as he was finally outed for his sin that he had written and published that book at the same time he was engaged in multiple adulterous affairs. So blind was he to his sin. Now, let me show you how blind Saul was to his sin in this passage. I go back to verse 12. Samuel's getting up early in the morning. He's going to meet Saul. It's told to him, notice verse 12. Saul came to Carmel, and behold... He set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. A student, she asked the question, why is Saul making a monument? No doubt it's for his great and glorious victory over the Amalekites. He thinks he's done good in defeating Amalek. And what he's done is commit sin that causes the Lord's rejection of his kingship and his kingdom. Do you see how blind he was to his sin? Do you understand how, how blind you can be even to your own sin? And to make sure that we can leave here tonight, not blind, but, but seen. Uh, let me focus on that central part of the passage more as we meditate on three things at the end. The first is this. Understand the anatomy of worldly sorrow. Because if you just kind of glance through this back and forth that goes on between Saul and Samuel over what exactly happened there with keeping Agag alive and keeping these animals alive, you'll notice the degree to which Saul doesn't understand true repentance. He only offers words, this anatomy that we might say of, of worldly sorrow. Because if you glance at verse 20, essentially what he's saying there in verse 20 is, well, yeah, Samuel, I, I didn't kill Agag, but I put everyone else to the sword. The obedience is partial. If you look at verse 15 and 21, he essentially says the same thing in both of those verses, blaming it on the soldiers in many ways. He says, don't single me out. Everyone else was doing it too. I wasn't the only one. Verse 21, if you continue on, he says, my, my motives were pure. And we took the best of all of these animals and we intended it to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. 
I had good intent behind what I was doing. And even glance at verse 24, he admits, doesn't he? Here's also why I did it. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I wonder when the last time was that you were tempted to excuse your sin away in these ways. I mostly obeyed. Well, everyone else was doing it. I had really good intentions in what I was doing. I was just scared of what they would say. I was scared of what they would do. And all of those responses are nothing more than just this anatomy of what the New Testament would call worldly sorrow. It's not a true sense of sin's heinousness and ugliness. It's not a true apprehension of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. It's not a true turning away of the sin unto obedience. The second thing you need to see is the priority of obedience. Because, of course, he contends, notice again, verse 21, that he's devoted the best things, or the best things are devoted to destruction, and these animals we've kept were intended for the sacrifice of the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel proceeds to utter something there. You'll notice in verse 22 that becomes a central part of Old Testament ethics, and we might just say simply it's a central part of biblical obedience. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. It goes to the heart of biblical faith, a response of what it means to have this faith and obedience to the Lord's word. What he's saying there is the Lord is not pleased with mere external rituals and rites of religion. However, apparently properly offered they are when the heart has no interest in true obedience. That's so easy that we can become blind to our own sin in this very fashion that we think externally speaking we're doing the right things. Everyone around us might see externally speaking we're doing the right things. And the Lord says, no, your heart is actually far from me. You're not obeying internally from a renewed heart. And that, of course, is the priority of true obedience. Thirdly, finally, don't just see the anatomy of worldly sorrow and the priority of true obedience. Also see the certainty of judgment. Look at verse 32 through 34. Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Kids, it should strike you. Agag comes cheerfully. He said, surely... The bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made children childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. is a priestly prophet that does what the king was supposed to do. Of course, it's here that we need to recognize the certainty of God's judgment upon sinners for what they have done. Of course, a king is coming. A king after God's own heart. A king, of course, who would lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's only beloved Son, whom himself, according to the New Testament, is the certainty of God's judgment. As the apostles would love to preach, even in the Acts of the Apostles, God has appointed him as judge of the living and the dead. Even as the Apostle Paul can say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, that he's appointed king over the world and he will, quote, inflict vengeance. Jesus Christ will on those who do not know God. Those who do not obey his gospel. There's a certainty of judgment coming from this king. But on this dark day in Saul's life, a dark day of rejection, a dark day, no doubt, in 
in Israel's life. Uh, we dare not leave this place merely in the darkness of that certain judgment that belongs to our sin. Because that very king that is coming to judge the living and the dead, isn't he the same king who was rejected for sinners like you and me? There on the cross, he hung as a substitute because he perfectly obeyed where every one of you have disobeyed so that he might be rejected, that you might know reception of eternal life. I do pray that you leave here tonight clinging to this king, knowing that he was rejected in your place so that you might not be rejected, but instead welcomed into his eternal kingdom. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that your word tells us that the day of our death is fixed. Let us not be like King Agag of old and think the judgment is past even when we haven't come in faith and repentance to your beloved Son. Let us know what it means in all of its true terror and horror that you reject sinners that don't receive your Son. But let us know even ever more in love and mercy and the grace that's ours in Jesus Christ, the warm welcome that you grant to people that love your Son and receive his grace. And we pray it all in his precious name. Amen.